So our topic today is about decisions um, from a biblical worldview. I've outlined this, the prerequisites of decision-making. And so we're going to move through seven points. First one being, know your place in God's story. Second one, know God's word, know God's will. Third, know that you're in the process of sanctification. Fourth, know your mind, know yourself. Fifth, know the resources and ask the questions. Six, know the pressures. Seven, know the providence of God and the hope that you have. So know your place in God's story. What does this have to do with making decisions? Answering this question lays the foundation that we need to build from. We consider what God has been doing, what he has done, what he's doing now, and how we need to get in line with that, right? So what is God's story? Some refer to this concept as redemptive history. I know, what's the connection there, right? So what is redemptive history? Redemptive history is a historical account of God working out salvation and redemption for mankind. In short, we all know this well, but just to brief us, in short, from before the foundation of the world, God set forth a timeline. Adam and Eve were created. The world was created. Adam and Eve rebelled and incurred sin and death um, and punishment. And yet, in Genesis 3.15, which I hope we all know well, God promised that he would one day send forth a Redeemer to save mankind from sin and death. This Redeemer would be the new Adam. Adam had failed. We needed a new one. He would live his life in perfect obedience to God. And so through doing, through his death and resurrection, he would make redemption possible and eventually reign over it perfectly. In short, the short and sweet version of the redemptive story is, um, well, this is it. This, sorry. That's it. But it's still happening. So we need to ask ourselves, where do we fit in this story? Because the story is not over yet. Well, currently we're in the church age, right? Now for us to appreciate the church age a little bit more, let's just brief back a little bit. So what came before us? Well, Adam and Eve, but then like thousands of years happened, right? Thousands of years of man's rebellion and disobedience and failure. Even Israel failed. Israel had so many tools that they're their disposal to honor God, they were supposed to be the ones that communicated to the world the redemptive purpose of the Messiah, and they failed. So we're at this point in the timeline where it's like, well, now what? Israel failed. What do we do? In walks in Jesus Christ at the fullness of time, and for the first time in history, mankind is offered full forgiveness and redemption and reconciliation to God, which is beautiful. So this is where we're at. We're in a new chapter. We're in a new chapter where Christ is, Christ has made it possible for us to be forgiven. We're in a new age of Christ. We're in a body, a new people, a new, we're in a new Adam. This is our current place in the timeline, but this isn't the normal, right? If we think of it from the big redemptive historical perspective, we're, in, we're living in an age that's extraordinary, not ordinary. I just want that to hit us a little bit as we consider how we live our lives. So the church is the next major player in redemptive history. As part of the church, we've been brought in to participate in that storyline. And it's a spectacular time. Even in light of what's going on, the craziness, it's a spectacular time because God has everything sovereignly orchestrated. Um, We live at a point where we're awaiting the Messiah's return. Christ's first arrival was greatly anticipated, and we get to live in the time where we're experiencing the first fruits of his redemptive work. It's really precious. Genesis 3.15 has, in one sense, taken place. 
though yet it's to be fully realized. Christ will be ultimately victorious, and the church, while it waits, it declares that hope and expectation. This is the purpose of the church age, to communicate the first fruits of Christ's redemptive work on our behalf. So knowing where we're at in God's timeline helps us determine how to live, right? And therefore, to get back to our main point, how to make decisions as we live. This leads to a conversation, a brief conversation about why we've been given the salvation that we have. Yes, as individuals, you and I needed to be forgiven and reconciled to God. That is the very merit of the entire redemptive story. That's why we have a redemptive story, right? That's the very need, the very warrant. But he also saved us to a corporate body, a body that has a purpose. You've been saved from the world to the church because the church is the vessel that corporately proclaims and demonstrates that this plan of redemption is in full force and that the key to Christ's redeeming ability, namely the crucifixion and resurrection, is taking its effect. The church's participation in this story, and so consequently yours and mine as well, is to corporately proclaim this reality, that Christ has been victorious over sin and death. This is a huge privilege. This should cultivate a conviction that reaches down to our daily decisions. We need a conviction about how we fit into God's story and how you live your life and the decisions that you make should be governed by your salvific purpose in Christ. So to help us connect this huge theology to the day-to-day, let's ask some questions. Where is church on your list of priorities? Are you faithfully serving? Am I faithfully serving? Am I using my gifts? Am I practicing one another's in the church? Am I living in fellowship and community and sacrificial service? Being involved in church takes a lot of time and effort. And that right there takes a lot of your decision-making opportunities, right? Because when you say yes to something, you say no to a lot of other things. And if you've been following along so far, our natural instinct of how we spend our time should be to give it to the church. I'm not saying... I'm not saying quit your job. I'm not saying neglect your responsibilities. I'm not even saying give up your hobbies. I'm just asking myself and us, do I understand that God has me here in this time to participate in this eternal work? So this is where we're at in the timeline of redemptive history. To help us better understand how to connect this big theology to our lives, we look to the book of Ephesians. Scholars pin Ephesians as the book that actually talks about this very thing, how the church intersects with God's redemptive plan for the world. So we don't have time to spend explaining how the full book of Ephesians actually supports that statement, but we will read um, 1, 9 through 10. God made, no, <clears throat> pardon me, God made known to the church the mystery of his will according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him with a view to the administration suitable to the fullness of times. That is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. Well, what does this mean? means that the redemptive plan of God wasn't understood fully before Christ, and now it has been made known in Christ and specifically to the church so that the church would take it and proclaim it. God is telling the church that they've been brought into this pivotal time with a pivotal role and so need to walk in a manner worthy so that they reflect the reality of Christ, that he has begun the work of redemption. So how we apply this huge concept in our day-to-day is found in chapters 4 to 6, which is the application of Ephesians 1 to 3. There's these walk statements in chapters 4 to 6. The verb walking refers to our daily life, our conduct, our decisions. Today, we'll only talk about one of them. Um, It's found in chapter 5. 
Let's read it together. And it, the emphasis being, walk as wise men, walk carefully. So if you want to turn to Ephesians 5, 15 to 18. So the context, just briefly being, don't walk any longer as the Gentiles walk, but walk in wisdom, walk in love, walk as imitators of God. Okay? So therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time, like Sosie was talking about, because the days are evil. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. And then it goes on to explain the results of what it means to be Spirit-filled. So our second point, know God's word, know God's will. In order to walk carefully, we need to know the will of the Lord. When we say that phrase, what is God's will or know God's will, we often think of something quite subjective, right? But it's not. Commonly, the church over the years has broken this question or this topic into three categories, the will of God, his will of decree, his will of command, and his will of direction, just as a way to help us understand. So his will of decree is what will surely come to pass. So the prophecies of the Old Testament about the crucifixion that have taken place, that's his will of decree. It's sovereignly ordained. It's going to come to pass. His will of command would be um, the imperatives in the Bible. So what he commands us to do, what he desires of us in obedience right? Those two things are clearly laid out in scripture. We have, we have our Bible. You all have a Bible, hopefully. It's not a secret. It's in plain sight for everyone to see, which is so encouraging, right? The Old Testament, they had to wait for a prophet. We have it. We have it. It's not, you don't need to be spiritual. You just, you read your Bible, right? This, the third category, the will of directions, where we struggle a little bit more. Um. It refers to our choices. So who to marry, where to work, what country to live in, what to do this afternoon. The Bible doesn't tell us these details. It doesn't give us explicit Bible passages. Go work at such and such. And yet at the same time, God's will of direction can be known by relying upon the previous two categories. If we know God's will of decree and obey his will of command, also known as listen to and obey the Bible, we receive direction for decisions that may not be explicitly expressed in Scripture. Psalm 119.105 says, Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. This means that while we may not have an explicit passage that tells us who to marry or where to work, we have the necessary truth and wisdom and instruction that we need in order to provide direction in the more specific areas of our lives. And this is all the instruction that God gave us and thought necessary to provide for his church in order for them to grow and mature into Christ's likeness according to his will. What we may still struggle with, though, is knowing how to apply it. And this is why we need discernment and skill in our daily living. But before we move on, let's ask a couple more questions of ourselves. Are we regularly reading God's word to know his will? Do we know about how, are we learning about how to understand the Bible from church and other resources? Are we thinking through how what we've learned should be applied to our lives? This leads to our next point. Know that you're in the process of sanctification. Ephesians 5 speaks of being filled with the Spirit. One of the roles of the Spirit is to illuminate God's Word to us. Understanding God's Word isn't done whimsically. It's not by sentient. It's not some transcendental experience or hearing a voice. We read it, and we ask the Holy Spirit to help us understand, and then with a reverent and contrite heart, we we listen and obey. This just 
I want to just take a note real quick and mention something within that. James 1.21 and 2 Peter, 1 Peter 2, 1-3 addresses our heart posture as we come to God's word, which is so essential. It basically tells us that our heart posture needs to be listening. We need to confess of known sin and repent in order to actually be listening attentively to God's word. Living in unconfessed sin while trying to listen to God's word in order to know his will is a contradiction. It's like trying to listen and plugging your ears. Doesn't make sense, right? Sanctification is dependent upon understanding and beholding and listening to God's words that we can submit to it. There are some specific scriptures that speak to this that will help us understand this process. I won't read them all, but you can flip to them as I summarize. So Romans 12, 2, as Sosie's already mentioned, Colossians 3, 3.16, 2 Corinthians 3.18, and Philippians 1.9. These passages help us understand the process of sanctification. Romans says we're transformed by the renewing of our mind, like Sosie said. Corinthians says that that process of transform- transformation takes place as we behold Christ in the scriptures. Colossians says that this change takes place when we behold the word and allow it to dwell in us. And then back to our text, Ephesians says being spirit-filled is equated with these concepts. So the Bible seems to equate knowing God's word and the dwelling of the spirit to be the same, both producing the change in the fruit that God desires. The renewal of our minds produces knowledge and discernment, which allows us to approve the things that are excellent, Philippians 1. And this allows us to prove the will of God. This change in mind and change in person is connected with the skill of discernment. Listen to what John Piper has said about this in reference to Romans 12 and Philippians 1. The Christian pattern of discerning God's will is by a transformed mind that assesses things with the instinct of God by the Spirit through the Word. Piper picks up that word approve, which isn't found in Romans 12 and Philippians 1, and points out that it refers to testing and knowing the will of God. Philippians tells us that knowledge and discernment will help us choose between things. It'll help us discern the excellent path. He goes on. He says, There is an implicit normative pattern for discerning the will of God. And this is, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So this is how discernment is cultivated, by testing, meaning renew your mind with truth, transform your mind, then take that truth that you know and daily try to apply it to a host of different suitable situations. If you do, your thinking will sharpen. For the next time, a circumstance that's similar comes around. Over and over, you'll see how God's word cuts through the fuss and the confusion and the muck of life and brings, it, brings the truth to bear on it and makes sense of it, right? This ongoing learning process will produce that ability to walk carefully, as Ephesians 5 spoke of. And remember, walking carefully is walking worthily and is one of the ways that we fulfill our purpose as a church and rightly participate in redemptive history. So let's flesh it out just a little bit more and take note of the kindness and the providence of God in this process. Think of the process of sanctification as it relates not just to me, not just to you, but as to the whole church. Daily life has a lot of decisions, easy and hard, right? We seek to be transformed by the Bible. We glean discernment for a specific decision. And in his providence, as we obey in that specific situation, he also matures us overall. It's an ongoing process. It's not just one singular event. It's an overall maturity process. 
In his providence, he also uses that process to fuel our overall maturity, and so we're growing. But individuals make up the group, right? We're part of the church who participates in the sanctification process. The whole church is maturing and growing. This results in the group of people that Christ has saved corporately maturing, with the end goal being that we become the perfect bride of Christ. So think of it this way. Your decisions participate in your overall sanctification. And sanctification's purpose is to be the purified bride of Christ one day, the church. Think back to our purpose as was mentioned in Ephesians. We are to show the world that the work of Christ was effective to redeem. The bride of Christ will prove this one day because we will be presented as fully sanctified. I think that just causes us to marvel at the intricate and powerful providence of God and his design for sanctification. So if the role of the Holy Spirit is to illuminate the word and bring the word to mind, again, as Sosie mentioned, we should memorize it. Having God's word memorized creates a data bank, if you will, from which we can draw. When faced with a decision, we need his word in our minds and in our hearts so that in that moment of choosing between the flesh and the spirit, we can draw upon it, instruct our minds, and apply it in that very moment. So let's memorize. So before we move on to our next point, let's just ask a couple application questions. Are we confessing and repenting of sin before we come to God's word? Are we actively trying to apply God's word to our daily lives? And are we memorizing? So our next point is a little more practical in a sense. It's called know your mind, know yourself. What we spend our time on, what we input into our mind and our heart shapes our emotions, our desires, our sense of humor, our reactions, everything. If you want to develop a conviction and a conscience, and discernment, but fill your mind with a week-long binging Netflix or celebrity drama. I don't know. You fill in the blank. We're being illogical, right? We are what we eat. Why I call this point know your mind is because you need to recognize that your emotions and affections and desires and values largely shape your decisions, whether we want to admit it or not. And so we have to be careful. And there's that word again, walk carefully. Don't Don't underestimate this. Your values decide for you in those gray areas all the time. You may not have a specific passage of scripture to lean on when it comes to, let's say, the question again of where do I work or who do I marry? Or maybe it's even less less objective than that. Maybe it's just an on-the-fly decision in the moment. You lean on what seems right. Well, that seems right decision comes from a value base. Let's go back to what Sosie was talking about. Being disciplined and thoughtful about how you live your life will have an effect. You make conscious and unconscious decisions all the time based out of a value system. The subpoint to know yourself, know your mind, know yourself. Know how God has made you. When you're trying to make a decision, be realistic, right? You're born into a specific family, specific place. You've been given a specific education, specific friends. All of these things are sovereignly ordained by God. Nothing is by accident. He's given these things to us specifically to steward. So think realistically. If I was 45 and had a desire to be a doctor all of a sudden, I don't know if I'd pursue it because at 45, I know it takes 10 years, a lot of money. I don't have the grades. So that's me taking into account my God-given reality, right? Think realistically. Ask yourself, what are your gifts? What are your strengths? What are your resources? What are your limitations? 
Take into account your God-given reality. He has given us a world to leverage and boundaries to respect. So being practical and logical should not be antithetical to being spiritual. So let's ask ourselves a couple practical questions again. What are we spending our time on and filling our minds with? Are we seeking to be disciplined and thoughtful about what shapes us? What is my God-given reality? So if seeking to be faithful to all this, this decision is still somewhat gray. If it's a big decision, consider the following. Know the resources and ask the questions. We've already talked about God's word. We've talked about spiritual disciplines. We've talked about the Holy Spirit. There's, there's more tools that God has provided for us to be able to make decisions. Prayer. So I'm, I, wish I, had, I wish we had more time to talk about this, but I'm assuming that along the way, you've been just kind of coupling the idea of prayer along with reading the word, confessing sin, all of that. Prayer accompanies God's, the reading of God's word. It accompanies asking the Holy Spirit for help. It accompanies repenting of sin. Pray specifically with a heart that's willing to trust God. Open your thoughts before the Lord and do what it takes to be honest. Actually spend time. Much clarity is gained through prayer, and much more than clarity is gained through prayer. The church body, another resource. Live your life intentionally with other people. Open up your life. Obviously with discernment, don't share everything with everybody. But allow people to get to know you, to know your tendencies, your desires, your propensities. Find an older woman who is godly and wise and who's willing to be honest with you and tell you when you're being logical or crazy. It's very helpful. Invite others into your life so that you can be sharpened and helped. And then finally, church leadership. The Lord has provided elders for us, and we are so blessed to have such an elder group here at this church. They want to care for your soul. It's their joy to see you mature in Christ. So if you need their help, seek out their help. They would love to shepherd you. Can we just take a moment and observe something together? God has provided so much in order for us to make decisions. I mean, if we just take off the list of the things we just talked about, his word, the spirit, the church, the elders, conscience, conviction, so many tools God has given us. When it comes to the idea of making decisions, we should almost feel overwhelmed with how much we have provided to help us, which is really sweet. God's kindness is amazing. So while asking, while using these resources, perhaps let's ask some questions, some practical questions. They're going to be up on the board. I'm not going to run through them all for the sake of time, but I just want to address a couple of them. I'll, amoral versus moral. Okay, so maybe we don't all know what amoral means, and I didn't until really recently. But so is it, does a decision have a moral component? If it doesn't, is it causing you a lot of stress and distraction? Maybe it shouldn't be. Honor the Lord with what you know, and just choose something. Does, this, does, the de- pardon me, does the decision consider others? You don't have to please everyone's preferences, but you're commanded to love others as you love yourself. So ask this question as you're trying to make a decision. Ask yourself, is there some ulterior motive, such as seeking to impress others or seeking to gain some advantage? Ask yourself, is it above reproach, or does it put your character into question? Ask yourself, what kind of impact will this decision actually have on my day-to-day? Am I okay with that change? What sacrifice will it take? Am I willing to get up at 4.30 a.m. every day? Am I willing to embrace country hopping for 12 years? Is it responsible? 
does it allow me to still steward the excellent things God's already given me to steward, like work and family and responsibilities? Don't allow the next decision to cause you to be unfaithful in the basics. And then, is it a godly trajectory? The decision may be okay now, but where does it lead in one year, five years, 10 years? And are you okay with that? So not an exhaustive list, just some things to practically think about. So our next point, know the pressures. Many of our decisions are made on the fly because we're busy. So being grounded in God's word and having a conviction comes in key. What are the pressures and distractions of life? What weighs on us without us even noticing? Our next topic is about prudence. Be aware of some ungodly ways of thinking about decisions. There's this book called Just Do Something by Kevin DeYoung. I had to read it in university, and it actually stuck with me all these years. It's very helpful. I suggest it. He goes through a list of um, potentially ungodly ways of thinking about decision-making. He uses the terms open and closed doors, which I use all the time. But he brings up some good points. Do we have a belief system that equates convenience, comfort, ease, and opportunity with an open door and call it an open door from God, and so it must be his will? What, if, what about the opposite? Are challenges and difficulties and roadblocks a closed door from God, and so not his will? What if Paul used that rationale? He wouldn't have the gospel. How many times did he get shipwrecked and beaten? I'm not in any way saying God doesn't set up our circumstances providentially. He absolutely does. Absolutely. And we're so thankful for that. He tells us that many times in his word. What I'm asking us to be aware of is taking that type of mentality and assuming that the difficulty or ease of a situation communicates more clearly than God's word. So recognize it as a providence if it doesn't compromise God's word. What about throwing a fleece? I think we all think of Gideon, right? You say to God, well, if you do such and such, then I'll know for sure. Well, there's a lot of reasons why this is an unhelpful way to discern the will of God. Essentially, we're waiting for a sign rather than taking the necessary steps to implement God's word and make use of the spiritual tools and disciplines he's given us. Let's not test God. What about waiting for an impression or a feeling? Our culture has a lot of phrases these days that sound like, oh, I feel like, or God's just really placed it on my heart. I'm not necessarily saying those are entirely wrong. I am saying feelings should not be the determination of our decision-making. They can be deceitful. Be self-controlled and take your intuition and impressions before God's word and see if they are submitted to it. I'm not saying you can't make subjective decisions. You can, and we do this all the time which is why we had to spend time talking about what shapes your values because those subjective decisions come from your value system. But in the end, impressions and feelings are just impressions and feelings. Don't assume it's a word from God. What about random verse flipping? I know I've done this many times too. When you flip to a random verse in the Bible in an effort to get an answer from God, this approach will often take God's word out of context. And of course, God speaks through his word. And so you could turn to something that's completely applicable. But what if you turn somewhere where it's not? Is suddenly God not communicating through his word to you? Is your method and trusting God suddenly floundering because he didn't communicate in the way that you're expecting? Listen, I'm sure none of us intentionally use these means of seeking God's will to confirm or direct our decisions. But just be aware of the subtle 
the subtleties that happen in our culture. I know I've done these things, all of them, many times, and have learned. So after seeking to know God's word and seeking to obey, after considering the God-given reality of what you're to steward, after seeking the counsel of the church, just choose something. Two good options, choose the one that you like. Choose the one that you're drawn to. Choose the one that you enjoy. Just decide something and then confidently embrace it and pursue it, trusting in God. Our last point, know the providence of God and the hope that you have. Let's admit this. Many of us worry about making a decision because we're afraid it'll be wrong and that we'll miss God's plan for our lives. While it's possible to make a sinful decision, we need to remember that God's decreed will is not changed by our ignorance, by our growing pains, or by our sin. Think about Joseph, David, and Peter. We see that even people's worst mistakes don't change the plan of God. In fact, if you recall those stories, each turned out beautifully. By using these examples, I'm not saying saying that we celebrate their decisions, their mistakes, and I'm not saying take them as an example. I'm just saying recognize that God is sovereign and powerful and committed to his glory and his purposes, and so orchestrates all things, good and bad, to his own usefulness and for his good design of sanctification. As a believer, we experience the positive side of this because God has promised to bring his church through all things. So really, there's no such thing as plan B because God designed only plan A, with all of our decisions included. Proverbs 16.9 says, The mind of man plans his ways, but the Lord directs his steps. And he's already told us that he's directing them towards sanctification, which leads to glorification. His care and plan for you through the decisions of life doesn't waver or bend in light of our weakness. So no plan B. So persevere through the growing pains, even though there's many decisions that we'll make that will not actually turn out as we hoped. Sometimes choosing one thing over the other actually has hard consequences. That doesn't mean the decision was wrong. In those moments, remember that just because we do what is right doesn't mean the outcome will be comfortable, doesn't doesn't even mean that it was the wrong decision. Resolve to recognize God's providence and remember his character and promise, and so trust him with your efforts to live this Christian life. So let's close by circling back to the beginning of this discussion. We trace through our place in redemptive history. As those who are part of the church, we get to participate in God's redemptive story. How we live our lives, our day-to-day decisions, play a role in this. I want us to close by really clarifying the hope that we have in all of this. Part of recognizing our hope is actually seeing how the process we just spoke about, knowing God's will, growing in discernment and wisdom, sanctification, overall maturity, even trusting in God's providence— plays perfectly into God's will of decree for the church and for Christ's coming. The maturity process that you are in produces something that God's will of decree has already promised will happen. Christ is coming back, and when he does, the church, the bride of Christ, will be revealed with him. But this time, as a perfect, mature, glorified body, displaying the full fruition of Christ's victory and redemptive work. Our current sanctification, including our daily decisions, participates in that.
God grows us individually, but as a body corporately into maturity, and the result is perfect maturity, the fully purified bride of Christ. The church on that final day will prove that what Christ did in his death and resurrective power worked. That God's plan from the beginning to redeem mankind worked. Because when the church, the bride, is presented, we'll see the full and final result of Christ's victory and his ability to perfectly redeem and restore. Our day-to-day can feel overwhelming. Our decisions can feel overwhelming, but know that your efforts are building into something, Christ's exquisite bride. So that on that day, a new people, born of a new Adam, prove that the old Adam has been redeemed. And know this, that if this is the plan that God has decreed, He has and will provide for you to join in the proclamation of Christ's victory. We live in an extraordinary time. May our daily lives and decisions reflect the effective hope that we have in Christ's victory over sin and death. I'm going to pray. Father, we just marvel at your wisdom in this plan of redemptive history and how you have allowed us granted us the privilege to participate in such a unique way. Father, we do ask for your strength as we seek to honor you, as we seek to know your word, as we seek to abide and obey and participate in Christ's work. We seek your help. So we just um, thank you and rely upon you. Lord, as we go into lunch, we just thank you for providing food. We thank you for the resources that you give us. We thank you for the sweet provisions, the daily reminders of your care, Um, And we just ask that you bless our fellowship for the rest of the the day. In Christ's name, amen.